Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. Hi, I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And I'm Charles Epting of HR Harmer, New York City. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. I would just like to address the obvious really quick. <laughs> this is Nigel. <laughs> Nigel <laughs> just moved uh, to New York from California. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on a plane all day yesterday. I'm very proud of him uh, holding up so well. So I'm going to let him uh, run. So it's and not- for those listening, Nigel is what kind of cat? Uh, he's a rescue. I don't know. He's a rescue cat. Uh, yeah. He's been he's been my family's uh, cat since I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived his life in California, uh, but due to circumstances, he's in New York now for yeah. uh, forever. This is his new home. So that was Nigel. Nice. Um, and and as you can see behind me, this isn't my normal uh, yeah. background. Um, I recently bought a house uh, up in Dutchess County, New York. Congratulations. Thank you, um, Michael. <laughs> Michael and uh, uh, his wonderful wife, Kaylee, uh, undertook the move with me. Um, so not only are we uh, podcast co-hosts, but we're also uh, we're, we're, we're movers. We will um, we'll come yeah. if you're looking for a new place. We'll, we'll come move you. Yeah, it's true. It's our, it's our side gig. So no, it, was, um, uh, it, it was a fantastic it, time. It, it was fun. And again, I apologize for the lackluster background, but uh, most of the boxes are not unpacked yet. So uh, that's where I am. Yeah, well, it was it was incredibly recent. Um, it was. So, it was yeah. so, so this is the longest. You know, for for um, people who've list, been listening, we we had uh, Larry Haber on. We mm-hmm. had um, uh, Rick Barrett on. Rick Barrett before that was um, Simon Martin Redman. Simon exactly. All these episodes were recorded weeks and weeks ago. Yeah. Because the last couple last month or so has been very busy for both of us. Um, you know, the move for me and at auctions and you guys have been getting. Mm-hmm. boxes and boxes of stuff in uh it's been a bit hectic so we decided yeah. to um take like a month hiatus from recording episodes and now we're back so if we seem rusty yeah. <laughs> uh or if i seem rusty michael will of course uh not um no, no no yeah this it's the longest as we were just saying before we started recording it's the longest stint we've had not recording without an we episode rec- we recorded so many episodes within like two three week period and then we just took a month off yeah, so it's good to be back. It's good to be doing this again. And who are we going to be talking to today? Today yeah. we're talking to Dr. Joseph Edelman. Uh, he he wrote a, a book a little while ago, I think a couple of years ago, called Revolutionary Networks, the Business and Politics of Printing the News, 1763 to 1789. And it, it's a mouthful, but I, th- I, pair, I, <laughs> I feel like this, this pairs well with our interview that we had with Cameron Blevins. Um, talking so what's, about what's interesting trips. about this one, I apologize for, for interrupting, mm, yeah. but what, what's interesting is we're going to be uh, talking to somebody who wrote about the late 18th century mm-hmm. when any astute observer will notice there were no postage stamps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, this, is, this is the period before stamps. We're going to be talking about how postmasters impacted the American Revolution. Yes. Um, which, which is really interesting. This is, you know, I, I, I love when we can branch out and talk about things that are sort of flatly adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah, what I think will this one will be. Uh, no stamps in this episode, but it no, will be. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe some, but I guess we probably won't even talk about the uh, tax stamps that directly led to the revolution. Um, actually he does cover that in his book. So maybe we will get to, we, we'll touch on it, but, but not postage stamps at the very not least, because stamps, we, yeah. we're still half a century out from the world's first postage stamp at this point in history. Yeah. 
Yeah, but we will cover um, the creation of the of the U.S. Post Office, um, and, and yeah, the issuing of postmasters from both the Continental Congress and from um, the, the the English government. And, and sort of this relationship between postmasters and the dissemination of the news, because, yes. you know, this, this was a time when, um, you know, uh, the, the number of people who were capable of holding these positions was relatively limited in mm-hmm. many places, I would say. So you'd end up with the postmaster was also the gentleman printing the newspaper, was also the, I don't know, the dentist and the, you know, yeah, yeah. the lawyer and the, you know, <laughs> all these, these uh, jacks of all trades. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be interesting to look at how that uh, influenced uh, the American Revolution. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, let's bring him looking on. forward to it. Uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's get him in here. Let's bring him up. Here we go. To, to kick things off, can you uh, sort of walk people through your uh, academic journey? How you uh, developed this interest uh, in you know the the revolutionary era and and sort of what your own um, again personal journey is to have gotten to this point? Sure. Um, well, my interest in the revolution goes back to when I was a kid. Um, and my second grade teacher handing me a book about the American Revolution. And then, you know, off I went reading God knows how many books. Um, my family still teases me about how many times I read Johnny Tremaine when I was little. <laughs> um, probably more than 10, but, you know, um, certainly a number that either is healthy or unhealthy, depending on how you want to think about it. Um, you know, and then in college was uh, thinking about questions of, as one does in college with these enormous ideas about American identity and how the revolution happened, how we ended up with, you know, 13 colonies breaking off instead of any other particular configuration. Um, you know, and when I was doing research projects, kept coming back to uh, news and the media and thinking about the ways that politics and the media interacted during the revolutionary era, um, again, in college as a way to think about really overly large questions. I then, after I graduated from college, I went to work for two years for the New York State Legislature for uh, a state assemblyman, uh, part of whose committee purview was um, the public service commissions and those areas of uh, state regulations, which included telecommunications. Um, So I actually have this weird knowledge of Um, early 2000s service standards for Verizon in New York State (laughs) and the the requirements and regulations that they had to meet as a a legacy telecommunications provider. Um, You know, but I spent a couple of years doing that. And also part of my job was media relations. And so I was literally doing media and politics. Um, But the revolution stayed with me stronger than contemporary politics. I went back to graduate school, but um, have always sort of carried those twin things, the revolution and thinking about my own now brief experience in media and politics to think about media and politics, the American revolution, and then more broadly in American history and the ways in which they shape one another. And especially the ways that media and media structures, which is how I get into the post office, um, shape how politics can happen, sort of create a playing field on which politics can happen. For somebody who doesn't necessarily, you know, a lot of people who, who uh, I presume listen to Michael and I are used to thinking about um, the post office in terms of stamps. They think about it from the 1840s onward. And um, I'm sure that a lot of people, you know, everyone knows 
Ben Franklin was the first PMG and all this stuff. But if you had to put us in the revolutionary era, who would have been uh, a postmaster from a town? Who would have been uh, appointed? You know, what, what sort of uh, credentials or qualifications did you need to have? Um, you know, might they have held another job? I, I know you talk about the the, the role of uh, their dissemination of, of printed matter as well. So what was a, a revolutionary era postmaster like if you had to stereotype? Okay, so do you want to talk about pre-1775 or post-1775? A little bit of both. <laughs> talk um, talk about it, the difference, if you can. For, for obvious, well, the obvious reason is one is British and one is American, right? That that's, um, so before 1774, certainly, we're talking about the British Imperial Post Office in the colonies, of which Franklin was one of two deputy postmasters general for North America um, for 37 years from, uh, no, sorry, not for 37 years. He was involved with the post office total for 37 years. He was deputy postmaster general for 21 of those from 1753 on to 1774. Um, and in that case, Franklin and his partner, deputy PMG, um, first William Hunter of Virginia, and then um, John Foxcroft of Philadelphia after Hunter died. Um, and then it gets broken even further up after 1765 um, in terms of the areas that they're responsible for. Um, were responsible for hiring postmasters. So in the colonial era, um, there's a couple of ways you can become a postmaster. Um, it typically, as you point out, is people who are close to information nodes already. Um, so it's often somebody who's a business person in town. So often a coffee house operator or tavern operator, right? Somebody who's in a place where lots of people are, are traveling and passing through. Um, or, and this is where the news really comes in, a newspaper printer in town, which are a group of people who are particularly interested in having access to information. Um, and, you know, depending on how much your listeners, viewers know about the pre-1840s, um, although actually even past the 1840s, there's not as much home delivery as there is today. So you, right, you had to go to the post office to pick up your mail. Uh, so for printers, especially, it works great because then all the information is sitting in their office and everyone comes to them to pick it up. Uh, right. And you go in, you open up the letter. Um, this is one of the ways that uh, I talk about in, in my book on, on news and the revolution that they get, they get news is, you know, you'd have somebody get a letter from London and they're standing in your office in Newport, Rhode Island, and they open up the letter and read it and go, oh, hey, there's this paragraph about politics in London. Do you want this for the newspaper? Right. Here's the latest advices from London six weeks ago. Um, can, can I take that paragraph out and publish it as an excerpt in, in my newspaper? Um, so the general principle is people who are close to information nodes or want to be information nodes. Um, there are family connections that play a role. There are an awful lot of Franklin business associates, cousins, <laughs> nephews who end up assigned as postmasters for uh, various towns. Um, and that's right. That's something that happens in the 18th century. Something that happens um, not with the post office, but with all sorts of other places today, where you know connections matter. So the 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 question that would kind of bring me to is is you talk a lot about the difference between uh, for newspaper uh, or newspaper printers and postmasters. Additionally, uh, them conjoined and, and and being together, the difference between the loyalists, the patriots, and those who wanted to remain neutral. So as far as it goes in appointing them, 
Were, did they try to keep their personal politics aside when being appointed so or concealed at, at least to, to try and gain a position of not power, but the ability to distribute kind of their political opinions? Yes and no. So in kind of the way you phrase it in the patriots and loyalists, mm-hmm. um, where we've gotten on the revolution <laughs> is thinking about um, loyalist as a category yeah. Um, doesn't really appear until really late in the imperial crisis. It's like 74, 75 before we can really talk about people who have sa- are saying um, where, where there's a distinction between the two, right? Before that, even the people who oppose British policies are still saying they're loyal to the crown, they're loyal to Britain, they, they love England, they've never enjoyed liberties like Britain. Um, you know, they just want to make sure that they actually have the full rights Um, And so in that sense, they don't have to set aside their personal politics because they're all making the claims. And it doesn't go to London for the appointment. It's going to Franklin and Hunter or Franklin and Foxcroft um, to make those appointments. So, um, you know, that doesn't play a role. This is where we get post-75 and post-1792. It starts to, and especially post-1820s, gets very different. Uh, in that sense, um, you know, in the broader sense of political as connections, as, you know, local rivalries and things like that, um, they absolutely play their cards in a way that makes sense for them. Um, so the favorite historian answer is it's complicated, right? Yeah. That, um, there are times, there are places, and it's especially true, um, this is true for, for printing, Um where in a smaller place where there's only one real printing establishment and one newspaper, Newport was the one I used before, so I'll use that again. Uh, there's not enough business to support two printers. Right. Um, there's yeah. enough business to support one printer. So if he angers a third or 40% or 50% of the population, he's done. <laughs> uh, where somewhere like Philadelphia or New York or Boston by the time you hit the 1760s, there's five, six newspapers being published at the same time. And so there are these sort of clearer partisan divides playing out in local ways, right? In Philadelphia, there's Quakers and anti-proprietary party. And then, right, New York has its various political factions. And um, I've lived in Boston for a decade now, and Boston's a mess in the 1760s politically. Um, So in terms of post office, it's about having connections locally to make sure that there are people who would support you continuing to have that position. Um, you know, and I forgot to add in answering the previous question, they often do hold other positions. Um, there are very few positions that individually can support you. Um, so if you're a printer, you want that post office gig because it's some sure money um, and a sure way to have some revenue coming in. Um, if you're only the postmaster, you want some other imperial gig um, as a customs collector or, or something um, to be able to make ends meet. So that's at play too, but it's it's about convincing Franklin and Hunter or Foxcroft and convincing local people. Um, and then there is some measure, I don't want to lose track of, there is some measure for competence. Um, you know, and, and Franklin, Franklin always takes the starring role, which fine, he was very energetic and engaged. Um, you know, he eases out even a couple of family members who are clearly not cut out for keeping accounts and and keeping track of of moving things. So to what 
well, I was just going to say, to what degree is it um, a lot a lot more cutthroat than it than it sounds you had talked about them being a close-knit group and and um and everything but it sounds like with competition for there only being room for one uh printer in in a smaller towns and everything would they keep their contacts uh overseas or in in london or even their contacts in other cities across the united states to themselves, or would they share this information and say, hey, I've got this guy in, in Boston who regularly feeds me information, or I've got this guy in London uh, who regularly feeds me information that's credible, you should uh, speak to him as well? Um, so in some ways, they're doing that without even talking to each other. Okay. Um, one of the ways that newspapers produce news is by reproducing news from other places. Yeah. Um, so your Philadelphia newspaper will have paragraphs cut out and, and reset in type from all the places to, they would say the eastward from New York and New Haven and New London and Newport and Boston. And you'd see those each listed in the, um, in the paper with those headlines. And they'd literally just be pulling things that they thought were relevant and credible. Um, they do tend, you know, if you're part of the Franklin network, you are more likely to pull something from a Franklin network newspaper who is somebody you may know, you may have apprenticed with or, or worked with at some point directly that, that those kinds of relationships really matter um, in terms of how you're creating news. You're allowed or permitted would be the better word um, to send individual copies of your newspaper for free to other printers. Um, they're known as exchange copies. Um, and that's how you generate, uh, it, it's what we would, well, at this point, it would be our Twitter feeds or something like that, um, where you're sort of self-selecting which um, news sources you have, uh, you know, in the 20th century, it would have been like the AP wire or, or something like that, where it's a, a wire service to sort of share and, and aggregate news. Um, and, and that's how they, they do that. Um, but yeah, then they also, over time, um, you know, some of them, I, I did this whole study of hundreds of printers active during the revolution. Some of them are ephemeral. They pop in, they're, they're on one imprint once, and then they're gone, um, right? And that's just, that's the historical mm -hmm. record we have of them. And some of them have these decade-long careers, decades-long careers in printing. And so they make lots of connections. They have apprentices and journeymen who work in their shops and then go work somewhere else, um, right? And the, the bad thing about not being able to support too many printers in Newport or New London, someplace like that, is that if you want to become a master printer, you probably have to leave. The good thing is when you show up in Charleston or Wilmington, North Carolina or wherever, you've got contacts. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are printers who stay around and work as journeymen. There are um, some number who marry the master's daughter and help take over the shop, um, especially if the, the master doesn't have sons um, who are headed towards a printing career. Um, you know, so that's one way to, to stay in town, but, um, you know, master, the, the master printers only have so many daughters <laughs> and that, that limits the number of, of apprentices to whom that's an option to begin with. I feel like today there's such a, a distinct separation between, uh, sort of, uh, government positions like postmaster and private industries, specifically the news. And I think about if, um, William Randolph Hearst had been a government employee as well, or Adolph Oaks, one of these guys what was sort of the cultural feeling towards having a postmaster also so prominent in, uh, was there any sort of, um, uh, you know, concern about separation of, 
church and state, but you know, separation of government and and media like that. Or was this just the times that you expected your postmaster to also be, uh, you know, a mouthpiece for the local newspaper? Uh, no, they didn't think about it at all. And in fact, this is a good segue to work after the revolution. Um, I don't know if you've talked to Richard John yet <laughs> um, about his yeah, yeah. post office, um, but he's um, he's the dean of historians of the post office um, in the in the academic community. Um, and I'm sure many of your, your listeners know who he is. Um, but what happens after the revolution is um, the Constitution gives Congress the power to establish post offices and post roads. It's right there in Article 1, Section 8 in the enumerated powers, nice and clear. Uh, and what Congress then does with that is eventually passes an act in 1792. This is Richard's, um, one of his big contributions. Um, the 1792 Post Office Act essentially sets up the post office as an infrastructure for political communication in the United States, um, that it's going to reach out to all sorts of communities. Um, obviously, communities want to have a post office because the Constitution says that then Congress will build you a road, <laughs> or it implies that, and Congress <laughs> sort of takes that up, that it's a way to get the federal government to pay for a road to your, from your town to the county center or you know wherever, um, and get you hooked into the national network. And it gets you hooked into the news network because this is they they turn it into an actual established infrastructure. They set up the rate structure, and this some of your viewers, listeners may already be familiar with. It's not for personal letters; those are actually relatively expensive compared to sending newspapers is relatively cheap. Um, and so it's it's actually designed to become exactly what you're describing, where the the post office and the news media are intimately linked and connected. Um, and this is, uh, the, you know, the classic example of this is in Tocqueville. Um, I use this in some sort of piece of writing. I forget exactly where that, but he's in the backwoods of Michigan. And, you know, he gets into town on his coach and he gets off the coach and everybody is up to date on what's happening in Washington. Because they've all got the newspapers from the post office and mm -hmm. it's only been, you know, a week or 10 days delay um, that he's fascinated that these people so far away from the centers of national political power are engaged. And it's, that's the post office uh, that's, that's making that happen because it's set up that way to, to do that. So at, at what point, and I know this goes down the, probably much further than, than the years you covered in, in your book and, and such, but at what point did that kind of start to separate um, there it's the 1840s, 1840s. Okay. Yeah. It's the two, um, cheap postage acts in 1845 and 1851, yeah. um, which is when you start getting, <laughs> that's when you start getting stamps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right. And that they significantly lower the postage on, um, personal correspondence, um, which both because of the increasing distance at which Americans are living and the amount of migration within the country that people are wanting to communicate, um, there's, you know, there's both, both supply and demand are, are increasing in terms of um, the ability of, of people, right? There's much broader literacy, cheaper paper, um, right? Everything sort of coalesces in the 1840s and 50s um, that makes all of that possible for an explosion of, of, um, of, of circulation of individual correspondence. Mm -hmm. So it, I wanted to touch on something you said earlier that uh, kind of sent something off for me is you, you mentioned that there were some people, some, some printers that just had one, one issue 
they did they didn't last very long and mm-hmm. um you had talked about the long barrier of barrier to entry for mm-hmm. printers sometimes they would need to apprentice for six years to become a, a printer print master um so these these people i mean surely they wouldn't study for six years apprentice for six years and then only have one issue where these people who tried to circumnavigate the 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 kind yeah of, i suspect that it's it's itinerant um career hoppers i guess yeah. you might call them okay. today. um they wouldn't have thought themselves that way they were trying right trying different things yeah um but yeah the, the traditional path was it was an 18th century artisanal trade and so uh, the traditional entry path was to apprentice for approximately seven years was the most traditional amount of time. So roughly okay. the age of 14 until the age of 21. And you'd sign an indenture contract, uh, usually between your parents and the master printer, uh, where he, the master printer would be responsible for feeding you and clothing you and teaching you the arts and mysteries of the printing trade. Um, and that's relatively standard language of right, the arts and mysteries of shoemaking or silversmithing or whatever um you know and then at 21 you get a clean set of clothes and you have your training um you know some of them would then stay in the shop and work in the same shop um because that's part of the apprenticeship um and so right it's important to mention that actually the whole family is involved in this it's a family Mm -hmm. operation um and so the, the almost all the printers were men there were a few women and even one female postmaster um but even when they weren't, when the women weren't actually the master printer, they were intimately involved in the business. Um, they often ran parts of the shop. They might be running the account books. Um, they might be responsible for selling stationery or books, right? There was often sort of a side affiliated trade to keep more money coming in. And then they're running a household with a bunch of teenage boys who are learning printing and that they're, this indenture contract says that they need to be fed and clothed. Uh, and that is largely a responsibility of, um, you know, the matron of the house, uh, to take care of, um, you know, but these people, the the people who are sort of floating in and floating out, some of them had gone through that and just were spectacularly unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but a fair number of them are people who try printing or they're not quite, they're not quite printers in the sense that we just talked about where they've gone through this extensive training. They're people who, um, you know, they live in a small town and they want there to be a printing press. So they, they get a printing press and they get it up and running, but they don't actually know what they're doing. So of course they're unsuccessful. Right. So to, to what degree would their success rely heavily on the stability that, that they would get to be a postmaster or you talked about people branching out into different, towns, would they then fail if they weren't appointed the postmaster of that town? They, um, they certainly might. Yeah. Uh, and in, so after the revolution, there's sort of this split. Um, this is, this is a little bit the last chapter of my book and then a little bit beyond the, the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's what happens along the coast where printing is already pretty established. And especially in the big three in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia is the trade just explodes in this into the ni- in towards the 19th century, where it's a specialized trade, where there's actually a separation of function between the printers, the people who are actually setting the type and pulling the press, and editors who are responsible for doing dealing with content, and publishers who are responsible for financing things. Um, 
further away from the coast, uh, you get what's still very much a colonial model where the master printer is the one who's supposed to take on all three of those jobs um, and often needs to be subsidized in some way, um, whether that's support from local businessmen to get set up. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second and extend on that because we've touched on it a couple times. Um, a position with the government, whether a postmastership or some other job um, to help fill the, the revenue gap to make ends meet, um, you know, or something else, right? And whether that, and often they would, printers would often very rarely print books in these small printing offices. Even Franklin didn't print a lot of books. It just ate up the time and resources of a colonial printing office. So they just imported cheap pirated copies from from places other than London, uh, especially Dublin, where copyright law didn't apply in the same way. Um, but yeah, to get set up with a printing office is, is rather expensive. In the late colonial era, it costs about a hundred pounds, um, which is a lot of money yeah. for somebody who's been a teen, a not relatively wealthy family that you're being apprenticed into an artisanal trade. Um, you know, and then when you graduate, when you become an adult at 21, you get two sets of clothes and the seven years of training you've gotten. Um, you know, you don't have a lot of resources. Um, and the printing press isn't even the most expensive thing. The printing press has an iron screw. Everything else is wood. You can, right, as long as you get an iron screw, you can basically construct a printing press. It's the type that really sets them back. Um, until the revolution, there are no type founders in America Franklin messes with it a little bit, but not on any grand scale. Um, but even after the revolution, right, that's, it's a lot of pounds and pounds and pounds of metal uh, that needs to be custom set. And so that's the, the biggest single expense. And then it's just this ongoing expense in advance of having supplies that you have to pay for upfront before you can make any money. It's, there's a lot of, of upfront costs. And so often, uh, the printers who do get started and do end up successful have, it, it's very clearly that there's somebody behind them, uh, who's helping out with that hundred pounds. Um, it's somebody like a Franklin who's sending one of his old printing presses and some of his old sets of types in agreement for some of the profits of the business to set somebody up in a new town. Um, which by the by for Franklin eliminates a potential rival. <laughs> He's also perfectly happy <laughs> to do that. It, it makes him money and it keeps him from losing money. So he likes those kinds of kinds of deals. I want to ask more about this transition from 74, 75, from the British to the, sure. to the colonial. Um, a wild story. So let's talk about it. <laughs> and I sort of have, I have two questions on a, on a micro scale. Were there many postmasters who retained their uh, position from the, from the British into the colonial era? And then on a macro scale, I think it is interesting. You talk about you know, the constitution gives a lot of ink to the establishment of a, a post office relatively to the prominence the post office probably has in our minds today. Um, how much of the colonial post was um, uh, taken directly from the British model? Uh, how much innovation was there by men like Franklin? So again, on, on, on a small scale, what did it mean for me, the local postmaster slash printer of uh, you know, New Haven or New London? And, and on, a, on a big level, you know, um, in terms of the, the network of getting mail from point A to point B, how much of it was a, a direct uh, Xerox of the British model versus um, uh, versus a, a more uniquely American model? Yeah, in terms of day-to-day -day operations, there's a lot of continuity. 
um, unless you are in 1775 a staunch loyalist, um, a lot of people simply they slide from one job to the other. They, you know, they cross out the British and write Continental, and all of a sudden they're the, the American postmaster, with, sanctioned by the Continental Congress. Um, you know, so putting mail in bags and sending it on by horse from town to town along the exact same post roads. Um, you know, I've lived in in New York and New England my whole life, so Boston Post Road, U.S. Route One in New England, right? That was the post road. Um, that ran along the coast in the 18th century. And, and that's why it's the main, that's why it's us one today. Um, so in terms of day-to-day operations is a, a fair bit of continuity, um, in structure, there are some differences. And this is, um, this is where I'd like to tell you the story of the constitutional post office, which is this other post office that, um, one of my wild, wild eyed dreamer of printers, uh, dreams up in 1774, um, so the, the problem during the imperial crisis and what makes the post office actually a focus for a time of protest and anger uh, is that the British imperial post office is designed to generate revenue for the crown uh, and quite literally for the crown, the, the way the British post office act is structured, the money from the colonial American post office is supposed to go to the treasury for the support of the royal family, um, which is not a huge problem until it's a massive problem, right? And that's, so that's one big deal is it's designed to generate revenue and take it out of the colonies and send it to London. Um, Number two, they're really worried about surveillance. And this is something they're absolutely right about. The British are absolutely opening mail (laughs) um, from people people who are suspected patriots, from the John Adamses and the Benjamin Franklins. Uh, He's got letters back and forth to his, uh, his sister Jane in in Boston saying, you know, be careful what you write to me because I'm sure they're opening mail, and they totally were opening mail. Um, they, there was, you know, a secret office in London that would check things before they got passed through. So this um, isn't just paranoia. This is it's a, not a, just. I mean, well founded. It's, it's always a little bit paranoia, but just because <laughs> you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. They were opening mail. Um, they were they were trying to engage in spy operations, and that in the British system goes back. It was designed that way in some ways by Charles II um, when the British post office was set up in the late 17th century. He was right coming after the Cromwell period. He was, his father had been beheaded. Of course he wanted to be spying on potential enemies. I don't necessarily sympathize with that, right? But from his perspective, um, setting up a system for communication did not mean he was setting up a system. He wanted to set up a system where people could oppose him. Um, so it was sort of embedded in the, the British system to monitor. Um, and so that's where the, the innovations come in. Um, so in 74, there's a printer in Baltimore named William Goddard, um, whose sister, Mary Catherine Goddard, in his place becomes postmaster in Baltimore. Um, when he runs, he runs off to create this constitutional post that's going to be independent of the British system and guarantee security of the mail and guarantee that the revenue goes back into the system rather than being sucked out of the system. Um, He presents it to the Boston Committee of Correspondence, which is really excited about the idea and sort of gives him encouragement. He presents it to the First Continental Congress. They're not as keen on it. (laughs) Um, But when the fighting starts the next year, the Continental Congress on its own picks up 
the idea of a post office. By that point, Franklin had been deposed from his imperial position um, for his role actually in leaking government mail. <laughs> um, the, the letters of Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson, um, he leaked back to the, um, the Boston Patriot uh, officials and, and they published them and he got in trouble for that and fired. So they make him postmaster general of this new continental post office. Um, and the innovations then are in the revenue doesn't go out of the system. It stays in the system uh, and guaranteeing security of the mail. Uh, and that right, that's something that holds true, not absolutely, but it holds true today, right? You have to have a, the post office has to have a warrant to open the seal on the letter. Take a look on the outside, right? The, the metadata that's on the envelope, um, that's pu publicly accessible, so to speak, to uh, postal inspection officials. But to open a piece of first-class mail, you're supposed to at least have a warrant. Um, and that goes back to this, this revolutionary, um, it's Charles II's fault. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and how did this uh, constitutional, what, what was the lifespan of it like and how did it evolve into, you know, what was this the direct predecessor to what became the official government post uh, once the, the colonies were more established? Kind of, sort of. Uh, it sort of operates as its own thing on the side. Um, and as British authority breaks down in various places in 74 and se 1774 and 75, various other printers, various other governments sort of set up their own ad hoc systems um, to continue circulating information, circulating news. Um, the committees of correspondence, right? Paul Revere is only the most famous of the writers <laughs> who carry news for, for patriots. Um, and he, right, in addition to Lexington and Concord that night, he is sent to Portsmouth on a famous ride, uh, New Hampshire at one point in 1774. He's the one who carries news of the Boston Tea Party south and west in December of 1773. Um, you know, and then there's a whole bunch of others who are couriers or um, post riders and also couriers for on the side um, doing other things that... Um, you know, that all these things are sort of springing up at the same time. Um, Goddard's plan is the most thoroughly thought through, um, but it's by no means the only one. And it doesn't, he's a, he's a polarizing figure. He does not make a lot of friends. Um, he actually got his start in Philadelphia as a Franklin plant, <laughs> um, which is its own long story, but then turns on Franklin and his allies. And so they don't really like him. Um, and he's he's blustery and, and cantankerous. Um, but his sister becomes continental postmaster, um, postmistress, actually. At, at the commission, they cross out the word master and write mistress. Um, and she serves as postmistress of Baltimore for 14 years. What's interesting to me, I almost see a parallel. The way that the security of mail was uh, an innovation made by a uh, non-official post office, you could say. Um, it, it's almost like the the uh, independent mails of the 1830s and 40s, where things like um, you know home or office delivery were pioneered by independent third party companies, and then the official government post uh, had to sort of play catch up and adopt these uh, regulations for themselves. It, it seems like there's almost a parallel there, where you had these um, I don't want to use the term rogue postmasters, but postmasters with their own 
ideas for what the mail should be. And then the uh, again, the, the government sort of caught up later and said, yeah, we shouldn't be opening your mail without permission. It seems like it is one of these cases <laughs> where uh, the history of mail in, in North America has been sort of pioneered by by uh, private enterprise. And again, the post office plays catch up later on. Yeah, I wouldn't want to. I mean, this actually gets into some of the questions I'm dealing with in the, the project I'm working on now. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't necessarily want to go so far as to say that that's the that's a unidirectional thing. Um, you know, I think if we spent even more time talking about Franklin and <laughs> and his <laughs> his work in the the mid decades of the 18th century with the Colonial Post Office, there's a lot of right a lot of the things that carry through into the, into the U.S. Post Office are things that he had cleaned up or innovated from within the government position to begin with. Um, you know, so I, I, I would say there's more of a, a give and take in that. Sure. Um, but it's definitely something where, right, in the 1830s and 1840s, it's illegal for those companies to be doing some of those things. And yet they are, but right, they end up co-opting it because it's actually popular. People want, want it right. to, to happen that way. Um, you know, and I'm thinking of, there's at least one example, because the British were so concerned with revenue, one of the things that bothered them was that some of their post riders in the colonial system had two mailbags. They had the official British mailbag. If you wanted to pay full postage, go for it. Um, but then I've got this other bag that'll only charge you half price. And since they're going there anyways, they may. And I'm well going there anyway, so I'm keeping. I'll keep the money, but you only have to pay half price. So hmm. interesting. Huh. So do do you mind talking a little bit about what you're working on now? You just briefly mentioned it. Yeah, sure. Um, so what I'm working on, and it's actually shifted a little from what I talked, what I've talked about in the past couple of years, um, is it's now a broader study up to God. Could they please stop debating the post office now, so I can, <laughs> so I know when my conclusion is going to end. Um, look at this interplay actually between the idea of the post office as a business and the idea of the post office as a government service. Um, Right. And this is something if your listeners haven't surfaced it to the top of their minds, that they're very familiar with the idea. It's it's a government service. It's got a universal mandate. Um, you know, I live in Framingham, Massachusetts. If I put Nome Alaska on a letter and put my stamp on it, the post office will carry it. It doesn't matter how much it costs uh, compared to carrying it to the next town over or just into Boston. But at the same time, um, unlike a lot of government services, right? You walk into a commercial built, a sort of commercial setting, you pay money. Um, I always find it strange because they you pay money for them to take things from you instead of they, they're taking money to give you something. Um, but right, so it looks and feels kind of like a business and it's, um, and and that's right. We see that in the debates in the last last year and all the, the commentary about Louis DeJoy and, and how the post office should innovate or, or things like that. Um, and so what I'm trying to look at in the book is a history of the post office through that question hmm. and the ways in which that debate has played out. Because it, it was playing out in the 18th century, too. And Charles, exactly the way that you were hinting that there there is this, but it's kind of a private, right? It needs to pay attention to private enterprise and the interests of business people. And um, But, you know, God forbid your mail doesn't show up that day. <laughs> yeah. So, so my, my last question for you is: How do your students, uh, you know, and 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 you know, we're all young. We don't have this relationship with the mail that somebody would have had 
even 50 years ago where you had to mail things. Um, do, do you find students have a hard time um, understanding the significance of the mail in a historical context? And do things like the last year where voting by mail or mailing of stimulus checks, you know, the, the mail has had a very prominent role over the last 12 months in terms of getting things to people or getting information from people to the government. Um, does that help sort of bring some gravity to the post for people? Because again, for much of our life, you fire off an email or you have, I have they online don't even bill. email anymore. <laughs> I was, was going to say, I, I have online bill pay set up. When I see somebody pay a, an electricity bill through the mail, that's, that's uh -huh. weird to me. That's a foreign concept. So how do you find, uh, you know, people uh, of, of a, a mail list generation um, grasping these, these concepts? Uh, and again, does the last year help when you've got, DeJoy and stimulus checks and voting by mail and all these things rattling around that, again, bring focus, even if it's not always the, the best focus when you, you know, people are talking about the financial situation. Um, nice. how, how, how does that help uh, you as a professor? Um, I think it does. I mean, anything that that draws connections for students between past and present helps for them when thinking about the past. Um, and some of the analogies I, I made for you in answering some of these questions of comparing right, newspaper circulation to Twitter or right. news aggregators or things like that, um, right? Those are all things that, that that slip off the, straight off my tongue just because that's the, the kinds of analogies I'm, I'm used to making. Um, you know, on a certain level, it's both no more and no less confusing to them than, than anything else. Um, you know, I'm thinking of my kids, my oldest is uh, almost 12. Um, they have no idea what TV channels even are. <laughs> right. Like they're, they they don't understand the concept of like CBS has a show on at a particular time. You have to turn on and tune to that channel at a particular time, um, except for sports that they get. But everything else is like, but I just but I want to watch this show now. You watch the whole season at one time. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's there's a way in which all sorts of things are are at that level of confusing. Um, you know, so yeah, I don't, they don't, they don't read physical newspapers. So um, before I can historicize what an 18th century newspaper looked like, I have to historicize what a 20th, 21st century newspaper looks like to, you know, they don't understand sections and right. So there's an extra step and layer in that, which is fine. That's the way the world works. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm part of the last generation that, that would have regularly, if ever held a, a newspaper in their hands, probably. Um, you know, but on the other hand, mail is still part of their lives. And I mean, particularly for my students at a, a public campus with a lot of local students um, who live with their families, there are still, right, they live with parents and grandparents and relatives who are getting prescriptions in the mail, who have, right, all, all the uses that people have for the mail still today, um, you know, they are seeing. But um, yeah, I mean, anytime something comes up in the news, it's helpful to me. And so having... Um, having those kinds of questions pop up and people thinking about it and talking about it in the present is helpful. Um, but uh, other than that, it's, it's like every historical problem of trying to get, get students to think about something of, um, and it's not a bad thing, right? There's no mm -hmm. reason why um, any particular generation should, um, should think in a particular way, right? My, my generation like I said, the very talent I had a TV. I don't know how old you, you two are. <laughs> I, we still had a TV with a dial, with an actual dial um, when I was in elementary school. 
um, you know, and, and not one without a remote control, but you know, then people don't know what that's like. And that's, you know, people lament that they don't understand what it's like to have to get up to change the channel. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's part of the challenge of, of the job is, is finding ways to explain things. It's a long ago and far away world. Um, and one of the challenges actually of teaching colonial America more than other geographies is that uh, sometimes students assume that it's more familiar than it actually is because it's people who speak the same language and um, obviously living in Live Massachusetts in, in some places. cases, like lived literally on the same land. Hmm. Um, and so they, they need actually a jolt to think about how far away and, and distant those kinds of places are. Great. Yeah. Do, do, do you ever find that their uh, interests are kind of piqued by, by what you're teaching in the post office at that time? people become that your students become more interested in learning more about it. I don't know if they're excited. I don't know whether to the extent that people get interested, I don't know whether it's that or the performative way I tell story, (laughs) whether they're just entertained by me getting excited about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, I, I, students do get intrigued. I mean, sometimes they're just sort of entertained by my goofiness of like the post office. Uh, you know, but they do get intrigued and I have, I'm able to do projects with them. Um, I have on trips to Philadelphia and to Williamsburg bought at the Colonial. So Colonial Williamsburg has a print shop that they print in the style of the 18th century Virginia Gazette newspapers. Um, and the Franklin Historical Site at Third and Market in Philadelphia um, has an operating colonial printing press that they print issues of his Pennsylvania Gazette and they have them for sale. So I bought like a 10 or 12 souvenir newspapers, um, but that are on 18th century newspaper with 18th century ink where you can, like, they're pressed, they're imprinted. You can feel the, the yeah. imprint of the, the letters, um, you know, and so getting students to actually hold those historic material, well, they're not historic, they're new, but holding historical materials and sort of mapping out, okay, here's what it looks like on the page where you've got all this news and here's where it's coming from. Um, students definitely get excited about that and interested in, in working with it. You're right that it's, it's you know, again, may, maybe students do think it's more familiar than it is, but at the same time, it, it's English for the, you know, for the most part, you can read it. Um, you can hold it just like you can go buy a copy of the New York times today. So I, I feel like it's this nice balance where it's not, you know, uh Carolingian history where there's no connection whatsoever. Um, but you know, it, it's simultaneously close enough to, uh, understand, but also far enough away to, um, you know, be able to take yourself out of, um, your comfort zone and your, your daily routine. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, 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 I'll defend my medievalist colleague. My students get excited about the history <laughs> he teaches. <too. laughs> I, 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 I love all, I love all history, but it, again, it, it's tougher. And again, you know, and I feel like, uh, foreign history is, is tough as well. When you, you know, you go to Philadelphia, you can stand where Ben Franklin stood. There's that nice, yeah, uh, tangible connection yeah, yeah. as well. So, uh, the thing they struggle most most with is um, the long S. Um, that before 1800, there was a, a printed character and a handwritten character of a, a medial S, where in the middle or ends of words, you might have an S that actually it, it looks like an F, but it doesn't have a little crossbar, um, and that that bewitches them. I think they struggle <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, but I have a five minute mini lecture ready to go in my head each time it comes up. So. <laughs> well, uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for for joining us for for taking time out to to talk to us. I know you've had a busy semester, busy couple semesters. Yeah, um, yeah. 
Well, thank you. This has been fun. I, I always enjoy talking about the post office, which well, and, and as you're I, I think this project, this uh this this um balancing act between uh business and public service was you know, once you're further I, I don't know if it'll culminate in a, a book or a paper or what, but should be a book. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, again once that project is uh is is further along, we'd love to talk more about that specifically. Because I think that is a question that it's it, it, you, you can ask the same question through every historical era and have different um, sort of case studies. Yeah. You know, nowadays it's, um, you know, have the, you read my the, book proposal? Is that, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's, I was going to say nowadays it's framed in terms of is Amazon taking advantage of the post office. Right. And it would have been something totally different in the 19 teens or the 18 teens or the yep. 17. I, I think that that's, uh, I'd love to have a, a more in-depth conversation on that topic uh, in yeah. particular. I, I, I substantively would be delighted to, and I'm sure my publisher will want me to. <laughs> I consider it done. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, this has been a blast. And um, yeah, we'll talk to you soon then. Great. Yeah. Thank you both. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Same here. Michael, I really enjoyed that. It is so great to be back doing this. I yeah. missed these over the last couple of weeks, and and what a great interview to um uh, to get back in the swing of things. Yeah. We've had these great interviews between Dr. Potroff and and Cameron Blevins, and uh, now Dr. Edelman. Uh, we're we're really covering every era. Again, we've got the stamp thing down. There's plenty of people <laughs> uh, have been on the show talking about stamps, but this this uh, you know stampless into early stamp period. This. 18th and 19th century history uh, mm-hmm. has been a really fun little um, opportunity for us to explore. This is something I didn't necessarily think of when we started conversations with philatelists because these aren't conversations with philatelists. These are yeah. conversations with academics, with with historians whose research is so intrinsically linked uh, to our hobby. Well, absolutely. And I feel like, like that's something we hear about a lot at shows is how do we get uh, this information about stamps and about postal history into the classrooms for for kids. And here we are, and there are people out here who aren't necessarily teaching, you, you know. Are, we, are we old enough for, that for college students stamps. or kids? I, I know I am. <laughs> uh, no, um, I, I agree. I, I think that there are people out there, you know, sometimes uh, there's this concern, how can we bridge the gap? How can we make yeah. people stamp collectors? There's people out there doing it who aren't necessarily stamp collectors, but they're teaching young people the importance of the post that's completely lost as you know we can say this as yeah. young people the significance of the post is lost on us today mm. since you and i don't necessarily send much mail um but but there are people out there doing it you know sort of outside of the hobby sort of off of our radar and mm. i love being able to hopefully introduce stamp collectors to the people out there doing this kind of research. I, I think that's important. And, you know, we keep having these interviews and I keep thinking in the back of my head, how fantastic would it be to have Dr. Potroff or Cameron Blevins or, or Dr. Edelman come to a, a summer seminar or come to uh, a stamp show, APS Absolutely. stamp show and have a, have a talk there. You know, this joining of actual historians who are studying the U.S. post office and pre-U.S. post office uh, you, there's overlap in the in the interest for actual philatelists, and and Absolutely. I think it would be great to have these people teach courses to philatelists as they're teaching courses to um, non philatelists. And, and one last thing I'll say, Dr. Edelman mentioned, uh, you know, the great Indiana Jones 
quotes that it belongs in a museum. There are a lot of things of historical significance in private collections. And I think that yeah. maybe, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of room for that gap to be bridged. You know, maybe something in a collector's exhibit at a stamp show uh, could, you know, contribute to the historical record and maybe become accessible. If something's in a museum archive or a library archive, it is accessible to researchers. Yeah. But maybe there's ways to make uh, private collections as accessible as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am 100% sure there are items of extreme historical significance in the collections of philatelists that some of these researchers would love to get their hands on, but don't necessarily know who the philatelist is who owns it. Um, and that's where we come in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. And, uh, Michael, this was, a, this was a great episode. Huge thank you uh, to Dr. Joseph Edelman. Uh, go buy his book that's out, and, and certainly very excited for his book that will be coming out at some point as well. Yeah. Uh, on on the, the post office as business and public service. Um, yeah, until next time, Michael, people can find us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple, uh, YouTube. Yep. Um, they can find us online at flatlypodcast.com. They can get in touch with us, flatlypodcast at gmail.com. They can tweet us mm-hmm. at Michael J. Court and Charles L. Epting. Yep. Um, I think that about covers... I think that about covers all of our socials. Yeah, that that covers how Charles Epting stamps on Instagram. Oh yeah, I'll mention, yeah. Uh, which I haven't updated in about a week and a half or two weeks, but uh, I'll be posting some really cool stuff soon. On I hope it's okay to plug that. No, of course. Hey, congratulations on your house. Um, this is a Thank this you. is a huge, uh, monumental uh, event in your life. The first house that's really exciting. Um, I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, again, yeah. it'll uh, hopefully become better decorated uh, in the coming weeks and months. <laughs> And no, uh, I hope everyone good. likes seeing Nigel walk yeah, back and occasionally forth. Walk uh, occasionally walk back and forth. He's, uh, he's being very chatty. We don't know what he wants. But uh, yeah, but yeah we'll, we'll have to do an episode uh, with both of us at the house sometime. Next time you come down to visit, oh, definitely. We'll, uh, we'll film something down here. Definitely. Definitely. Great. Well, uh, until next time. We'll talk to you, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. See you then. Uh, you too. Bye.